Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Kelly Richardson Lawson. I'm a mother, a wife, and an entrepreneur. I started the Sunrise Project after our beautiful teenage son attempted to take his own life. Truth is, I'm tired. My husband and I felt despair, isolation, and immeasurable pain. I knew in my heart we needed a place for Black parents to share their struggles, find mutual support, and help our beloved children who struggle with mental wellness, addiction, or both. Each weekly podcast features an expert who shares their knowledge and takes questions from parents and children. Take me to the king. I don't have much to bring. The Sunrise Project allows Black families, like ours, to find comfort in knowing that we are not alone. While the purpose of the Sunrise Project is to share, support, and uplift, this conversation is not a substitute for medical advice. Finding the right healthcare professional for your family's specific needs is crucial. If you do not feel seen or heard, you should speak to more than one professional to find the right fit. Good morning on this beautiful Sunday morning. I'm so happy you are here with us, as always, in a safe space filled with compassion and love and a mutual desire to heal ourselves and our families and our children. Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. This morning, we have one of our resident experts, Dr. Linda McGee, here with us to talk about a very serious and sobering situation, uh, which is suicide. And those of you who have been here with us along this journey know that uh, one of the reasons for the Sunrise Project being born all together was my eldest trying to take his life twice and thankfully was unsuccessful. Um, But through the journey of finding help and the journey of various mental wellness challenges, we've seen so many of our beautiful young people take their lives. And so this morning, uh, Dr. Linda McGee is here to help us all better understand what's happening with our young people. Uh, What are the horrific stats that we're all seeing? What can we do um, as parents to help our children hopefully not resort to wanting to end their lives. And I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Linda McGee right now. She is a clinical psychologist and specialist uh, with young people and families and has been with us many times. She hosts a radio show. She's a well-known published author of many, many uh, papers and studies. And we are just so honored and pleased to have you here with us, Dr. McGee. So thank you. I'm going to turn it over to you now. Thank you, Kelly. Good morning, everybody. I wanted to just take a minute, though, before we get started, because we're almost two years into this crisis, and I would love it if you all just took a couple of deep breaths, get comfortable in your chair, and take just a couple of few natural deep breaths as we come into this discussion on a serious topic. I want you to do a self-check-in. And if you have pen and paper handy, write it down. How are you feeling, parents, almost two years into a pandemic? What are some of the things that you're seeing in your child? Are you seeing any differences in mood and behaviors? Are you feeling any of your own mood changes? Because I'm getting a lot of reports that two years in, that people who previously didn't have any problems with mood are starting to feel it. So I want to frame the discussion with those questions. And so when we get to the question and answer period, to use those, how you are today, what is your um, child set point today? So let's talk a little bit about what's going on when we're talking about suicide. 
before COVID, the nation was in a mental health crisis. And even some people are calling it the second pandemic. COVID only exacerbated those things. The CDC is reporting that a third of Americans, adults and children are experiencing some kind of mood disorder. I said this before many times, that's the highest ever in recorded history. And I actually think that that's an underestimation of the problem. So here are some things that we know. One is that the early studies from early in the pandemic are showing that the suicide rate is not necessarily going up, at least through the first year of the crisis, but it was already up exponentially before the crisis began. So we gotta take those stats with a grain of salt because what we know is early in the pandemic, people tend to react in big crisis in a way that they pull together. So it's only natural that sometimes the suicide rate will plateau early into a national crisis. And we have some anecdotal evidence that people experience the pandemic in a different way than they experience their typical mental health uh, struggles. So early in the pandemic, we saw like a slight plateauing of the suicide rate, but we don't know what's gonna happen. We don't only have statistics through 2020. We don't know what the statistics are for 2021. We're hearing a lot of evidence that it may be ticking up again. What we do know, again, is that the suicide rate went up precipitously before. So among the deaths of children 10 to 18 overall, regardless of race, it's the second leading cause of death. So we also know that among Black teens, that when kids are hospitalized with mental health disorders, they are reporting more suicide attempts and more suicidal ideation. So for, for those of you who don't know, an ideation is a, just a fancy way of saying that the person has suicidal thoughts. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. So we know that for Black children, as hard as the statistic is to metabolize, between the ages of five and 12, the suicide rate is almost double that of white children. Now, when, when we reach adolescence from 13 and 17, it flips back over again, where white kids' suicide rate is higher than Blacks. But between five and 12, the suicide rate is almost double for Black children than it is for white children. And that is from the Journal of Pediatrics big study that they did in 2019, which started to bring the Black awareness into the fact that we have a huge suicide crisis in this country. So we found increased attempts for Black girls and Black boys. But the sobering thing is, is this, the boys were more successful. And a lot of you know why. Boys tend to use methods that work. Right. And so when I say work, I mean that in a, the saddest sense. But they use methods designed to work, meaning that they use guns, they use hangings. So, what the researchers, though, have noted is that as Black people continue to work within our communities, our community organizations, our community mental health organizations to continue to destigmatize mental health care. Um, to uh, make contact and keep contact with our youth and to parent in a way that we can impact the suicide rate. So one of the things that I know is that suicide is, even though people try to tell you that it's easy to predict, it's not. So we've spent a lot of time looking at warning signs and, and they do help, but they're not dispositive. That's why I'm going to emphasize to you that you have to look at the person that's in front of you. But what we do know is that previous suicide attempts are probably the leading indicator as to whether or not the person is going to attempt it again. 
Mental illness is a huge indicator, such as depression. When people are isolated and they're cut off socially, when people have current problems with the law, when they have problems with finances, um, if they're impulsive, right? If you have a child or if you have a loved one who's impulsive or even aggressive, sometimes that's an indicator of suicide. Job problems, if you lose your job, legal problems, if you're facing a serious illness and substance use disorder. So if the person is struggling with substances, a lot of times that weighs in on their thinking. And you and I have sat here on many Sundays and listened and talked about marijuana. And one of the studies that just came out indicated that when a child has marijuana issues, a lot of times they don't necessarily take in the views of others and incorporate other people's feelings well. So that has a real impact on how a child or an adult functions. Also, if the person has been bullied, if they have relationship problems, breakups, if there's a family history of suicide, if there's sexual violence done to them, and also one of the barriers, if there's barriers to healthcare. So I told you we, didn't, we don't really understand everything that has to do with suicide, but a group that has studied suicide a lot is the military. And one of the things that they've come up with is studying this over and over again is if a person has a high desire to commit suicide and they've done a lot of advanced planning, then that sort of is a group of people that they watching the most. So high desire means that the, at, the, at that particular moment, the person has a high desire to commit suicide. Plus they've had an advanced plan. What does that mean? Well, they're not just telling you they'd rather not be here. They're telling you or you notice that they have acquired a gun. They have told people that they're going to do it. They've told people when, when they're going to do it and where they're going to do it. They've you know, written a note. So they have a real plan. It's just not a nebulous idea that someone spouts out that I'd just rather not be here. But what the latest studies have shown is that maybe our focus in mental health on warning signs is important and we need to do it, but it's just not enough, right? So what we want to do is we don't want to like be at the back end trying to, trying to decide whether a person is at risk of suicide. We want to treat the mood disorders earlier. So treatment earlier is one of the ways to prevent suicide. There are also protective factors that help, right? If you have a child or if you have a loved one who has some decent coping skills and problem solving skills, a lot of times they are able to withstand the attacks on their mood and the despair um, by just working to problem solve and working with therapists and family members to problem solve. So this is another way that religion ha actually, you know, actually helps is that when there are cultural and religious barriers against suicide, then that often discourages people from committing suicide. People that are connected to families and friends and communities are often less likely to commit suicide. People that have supportive relationships with care providers, like a therapist or even their primary care physician or their uncle or, or someone like that. If mental and physical health care is available, then a lot of times that acts as a protective factor. The last thing I want to say is what is their access to the means to commit suicide? So we saw with the Connecticut school shootings where the person had lots of access to firearms. So when I worked in a mental health care clinic in Virginia, and we had to go into the homes of people that were suicidal, we would not go into the homes unless the guns were removed. So if you have a child or you yourself or people that you know are suicidal, ask them to, if they would give up their guns. Ask them if, if they 
um, would allow or, or, or remove the sharp objects in their house. Getting rid of guns from the home of someone who's suicidal is probably going to be one of the most important things that you could do. Another thing you can do is you can reach out. So how do you communicate? How do you check on your loved ones? And I'm going to say two words or well, three. Listen and act, okay? Listen and act. How do you do that? Well, first of all, you use the person's preferred mode of communications, right? So, you know, y'all know we raised in a generation of texters. We don't raise kids on the phone, but we want to try to use the methods, if at all possible, that they prefer. So if you're checking in before, the, if, if there's no emergency, if you're checking in and they're texters, then try text. If that doesn't work, then try in person. But when you do use their method, you want to listen with intent, right? So what does that mean? You are listening with intent when you listen with a focus, right? With a focus toward analyzing where the person is in terms of their mood and in terms of their potential suicidality. How do you do that? Well, most of you parents are the person who knows most about your children. You know things about them. You know things about your aunt. You know things about your cousin or your coworker. You know their likes, you know their dislikes, you know their passions, you know there are no go zones. So I want you to think about listening with intent. You're listening with your head and your heart. Okay, so what are you looking for? What are their habits? Have they deviated from their habits? Like the person that stopped going to work and you knew them all their lives as a worker and they have stopped going to work, their, their, their attendance is spotty. They stopped doing the things that they used to enjoy. That's called anhedonia in technical terms, but things that they used to enjoy, they no longer enjoy doing. So if you have a child who didn't miss a playoff game and all of a sudden you call them and you ask them, are they watching the game? And they say they're not watching the game. I'm not trying to say you have to be an analyst or a psychologist yourself, but listen to their voice, right? Listen to their tone. If you're listening to a fluent child that speaks really freely and is articulate and they are pausing and are hesitant or their tone is like lackluster, note all of that. Have they cut off other people? Listen, and you talk to one of their friends and you know that they haven't talked to their friend in months. I want us to, as people of color, look behind the smile. One of the most tragic cases I had involved a child whose parent committed suicide. And all throughout the obituary, they said, dad always had a smile on his face. Look behind the smile, right? And see that dad had lost his job. Dad had stopped showing up at the child's events. Look behind the smile. And while we're at it, y'all, look behind the Facebook posts of all the wonderful things that this child or, or this person has done. Because that is, as I've always said, a Facebook was facade, right? So when I say listen and act, what does the act mean, right? You've listened. You've decided that things are not right. What do you do? You go over there. You check on them. You have someone else check on them. You drop over dinner. You say, I'm going to be in Philly next week. Or I'm going to be in Northwest. Let's go have lunch. Or would you mind going for a walk? You want to use engagement, what they like engaging in, anything to get your foot in the door. So if it's a walk, if it's dinner, if it's beer whiz, whatever it is, try to organize something where you are in direct contact with the person. Continue to listen and assess, listening with intent, with your head and your heart. Linda, can I ask a question uh -huh. about that before you go on? Sure. I think it seems like, you know, the word listen is so powerful. And I um, I was just watching an interview of, with Juice World's mother, uh -huh. Carmela, and she talked about 
the end of the interview, of course, how devastating it was that her son died only 21 and how he was such a superstar to so many of our children, you know, mm-hmm. some like favorite artists um, mm-hmm. who really looked up to him and who could relate to some of his messages of mm-hmm. depression and anxiety and all that. Um, and one of the things she said, in addition to listen, she said, really pay attention mm-hmm. because they may not be talking at all, but right. there and- might be things that they're doing that you say, you know, I, I remember the time Kyle took the first set of pills. He came downstairs. He was wobbly. I was like, what is going on? But I didn't pause to really pay attention. It was mm-hmm. like, okay, why is he wobbling? He's acting really weird. That's right. strange. But I kept on moving versus paying attention, pausing, and really understanding what was going right. on. Putting your phone and, down, taking a day off work because you notice that yeah. something is there. And what we see so much is that in the last, what, year or so, Kelly, you could probably name y'all on the line, you could probably put in the chat, all the Black artists that we've seen and actors and that have committed suicide or that have died by suicide because we're we're supposed to not say committed because that makes it seem like the person is at fault. But we've seen them die by substance abuse overdose. And so that's another key thing is that people are not getting treated for substance abuse, right? And so because they're depressed, they're using those substances as a way to bomb their um, depression or anxiety. um, And they're not, they're addicted. And so that eventually results in a death by suicide. There was a story on yesterday, Kelly, I don't know if you saw this about um, one of uh, our listeners texted it to me yesterday, one of our Sunrise listeners, about a bad batch of drugs over by National Stadium and how that has resulted in a lot of hospitalizations. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Um, so you're right. It's not just listening. It's listening with intent. It's acting and it's attending. I remember when my own child, when they, he's had some crises, it's like you just notice something is wrong. And then you get in bed that night and you realize I need to do more. So the next day, I remember getting up and going down to his room and just asking him, we had that conversation last night. Can, can you can we talk a little bit more about that? When you're with the person or when you're talking to the person, you want to see if they will remove some of the non-safe instrumentalities that people have, ways of committing suicide. Will they take the guns out of their house? Will they, do they have pills? Ask them, you know? But I want to give a big but here. You have to consider your own personal safety when you're dealing with people that are suicidal. And if you need to, You need to call in reinforcements. If in doubt, call in reinforcements, even if you just want to consult. So where do you get those? Where do you get help? There's non-emergency lines. Um, They're like Prince George's County in Maryland has a mental health non-emergency line where you can call in and you can get advice. And they can walk you through the process of how to help. I've utilized this a lot as a therapist. And they have mental health workers in the mental health departments that work with the police. And then they go out and they will sometimes check on people. So it's not the regular part of the police. It's the part that's connected to the mental health of a county. You might consider checking your, the person into a mental health treatment ward. Check, check them into a hospital if you don't think they can keep themselves safe or if they will go. And just say, I don't think you can keep yourself safe. Let's go where they can help you. There's also intensive outpatient treatments that you can sort of ramp up the person's therapy by putting them in these things called intensive outpatient units, where they go in there every day and they get group therapy, they get individual therapy, they get substance abuse treatment. 
and ways to start working on the severe uh, depression. Ramp up the therapy. Your child is in therapy. They're seeing the therapist once a week. See if you can ramp it up two, three times a week. Whatever it takes to get that move from the dangerous levels to more uh, helpful levels. Consider medicating. Find a therapist. Now, I know we spent many, many hours on here. And my friend Danielle Boucre spent some time talking about finding a therapist. We've all talked, we all know it's hard right now. But let me just say this if your child is in severe crisis or if you're in severe crisis, it doesn't have to be the best therapist ever. It doesn't have to be a man, Black, who's from the Caribbean. Find a therapist. If it's an emergency, find a therapist. You can continue to look, but you need to get in emergency treatments. Use your connections, your friends. Be persistent. Call the therapist. Call them again. Email them. Because I know there are a few therapists on the line. Y'all know what I'm talking about. We are getting inundated right now with calls. So keep calling. If in emergencies, we want and you might need to get the police involved. But I know in our community that that is a really big step. But if you have to call, tell them what the problem is, document, see if they have mental health personnel, because some officers are specifically assigned to police. I know that Kelly has talked to someone in uh, the Bethesda area that has some expertise who's African-American. So if there are people like that that you can talk to about your child before you call the police, talk to them, document your conversations. And so I have a few, this subject goes on and on. I want to really allow time for you to tell me how you're doing, but I have some final thoughts and we're going to put some resources. I know that there are suicidal uh, resources on the Sunrise Project, and we're going to make sure that they're up there today. One, you got to risk the person being mad at you by checking up on them, right? You're just going to have to risk that. Um, I remember one time, this wasn't suicide, but I remember my mother said to me when she was feeling ill, she said, I'm going to be very mad at you if you make me go to the hospital. And I said to her, well, you're just going to have to be mad. And the doctor told me when we got her there that if she, if I hadn't taken her to the hospital, she was having an um, allergic reaction to a medication, then she would have died. So you have to risk the person being mad at you. Take suicidal ideation seriously. I know that some of you have children who tend to be dramatic. And I know that you have children who are hanging out with their girlfriends and it might, or their boyfriends, and it might be a popular thing to talk about suicide. But still take it seriously. The fact that the person is focused on that particular issue, even if it might be something that is faddish, still get help. Consult with a professional. Do not mark it off to drama. The next thing I'm going to say is going to sound um, pretty disconcerting, but I want y'all to forget about normal right now. We are two years in a pandemic. There is nothing normal about this. I want you to just focus on securing the mental health and well-being of yourself and your children. I want you to just be. Support yourselves, your families, and your loved ones. Amp up the self-care for whatever you need. If it's meditation, if it's a diet program or a, a eating plan, if it's more exercise, if it's you have to get away, you have to get out of your house. Like a lot of times now I'm tired of being where the exact place I am right now. So I'm moving around my house a little bit. I'm thinking about renting some of those hotel rooms that are $40 during the day just to get myself moving. It's okay to let yourself or your child be and not have accomplishments be your number one goal right now. It's okay to let them be. Can you just repeat that again? I think that's the hardest part for so many parents to have these trajectories of graduation yeah. and from high yeah. school and going to college and, da, da, yeah. da, 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 and then they decide to veer off that path. Many parents have a really hard time. So I just want you to double click on that. That pressure is a big yeah. part of this, I think. Just, it's okay to let them be. Progress can mean that they're breathing, that they're smiling, and that they're on your couch eating all your food. That can be progress right now. It's okay to let them just be. And finally, I want you to applaud yourselves. 
you all have parented through one of the most unprecedented, many of us have never seen anything like this and we may never see it again. I want you to give yourself a little bit of a pat on the back for making it this far. And in addition to taking care of your children, I want you to really focus on taking care of yourself. You have to put your oxygen mask on yourself first. And with that, I would be happy to listen to what you have to say, to your feedback, and whatever it is you want to tell me today. There's a note in the chat that says, one of the hardest things to do in my life was to have both of my children at different times admitted to a mental health hospital. It was mm -hmm. necessary after my husband's sudden death. However, later, both children told me that their admission saved their lives. Mm -hmm. If we could get past the, I have a child that needs hospitalization and take them to the hospital where they can get help and we do it with enough time where they're not critical, it could be life-changing. If your child asks for a therapist, I want to support Black parents, but I'm just going to keep it real here right now. A lot of times when Black people come to me, they are saying to me, they've been asking for a year for a therapist. And I want you to like not wait a year. You know, the first time, why do you need a therapist? Well, I'm going to look into that. So you call a therapist, you call the ones that are on this line right now listening, you call me, you email me and say, she's asking for a therapist. You know what I'm going to say though, right? Get the person a therapist. So that person, this woman who commented, likely saved her children from a lifetime of, of very disconcerting, uncontrollable mood disorders by getting them help. Yeah, she says she decided to become a clinical psychologist. Most, a lot of people in our community, and, and we're going to end up saving ourselves, have decided in this last few years to go into mental health care. And now we need y'all desperately. We need your kids desperately. So stop trying to all talk them into being engineers. Let them come help. Can, is, can someone read the questions for me? Kelly, can you do that? Sure. So this one mm -hmm. says, my son, who is an adult, has many of the risk factors you mentioned, but has never mentioned suicide. He will not speak with a therapist and there's nothing I can do unless he says he is suicidal, attempts suicide, or is committing a crime. What can I do myself to help? Also, my son has been, quote, on pause, quote, for three years now mm -hmm. because I'm concerned about his life, not his accomplishments, although family members question why he's doing nothing. I question whether I'm doing the right thing by letting him be. Letting him be, in, you know, for a month or two was what I was actually referring to, or, or a year. But, okay, your son is an adult. So one of the things is, is that it's the hardest for parents is to accept that sometimes they have control of their own mental health and they may either choose to plug in or not choose to plug in. One of the good things is that he's, he's not having suicidal ideations, but what I would say, periodically continue to ask about therapy, um, give him a name of a therapist, you know, just on a piece of paper or an email or a text. You know, son, I ran across this person. Um, I understand she's good with young professionals. Um, you might even have um, the idea of getting like an educational consultant if they're continuing with their education or a job consultant. Look into other sources, periodically mention it, continue to nurture. Now, you have a child is three years, they, if they're an adult and they're in your home, you might want to have some family work around what are the parameters around them continue to stay in your home and how do you address that, right? Because one of the things that I tell parents is, you know, you can, you could ask them to have treatment as a condition of them continuing to stay there. Now, whether they'll fight you or not or is, is one thing, but a lot of times, there is some progress in letting the child come to the conclusion that they need help. And this person is three years in. So you might want to say, you know, I, you know, I want to continue to support you, but I think we need to go see somebody as a family and make an appointment and have them in there. 
I want to acknowledge uh, one person is saying it doesn't help that many parts of our society either try to convince our children that their problems don't exist or their experiences are minimized. Mm-hmm. And then we, you know, as black women, we're marginalized all the time and mm-hmm. as black men you know, the challenges, the daily challenges that our boys face and our men face in society. It's just a lot. There is another comment about Mm -hmm. so important to be able to build a relationship with your therapist, but please broaden your perspective, prioritizing good care to cultural fit. You can start with one therapist and switch later. That priority is getting the help your child needs. You gotta get in there with the kids. You gotta know where they live. When I used to see little kids, I was on the floor with them. Now that I'm with teenagers, I know about anime. You got to relate to, you know, sports, that they love the rappers. So it's the relationship that matters. Now, can other people from other cultures build that relationship? Um, yes, but they, that, they, but they have to be competent. But if your child's in crisis, start with them. Right. And see if you can find, continue to look for a therapist. Right. But right. give them the care that they need now. And to that point, there's a question about state lines. A woman is saying that she's had a hard time finding a therapist that can assist us across state lines. And Mm -hmm. insurance coverage has also been a barrier, even though we have insurance with two different companies. So it's Mm -hmm. quite difficult. So do you have any advice on, because some are not licensed, you know, or are there virtual options? Um, I think that that's an issue where the insurance is actually the, probably the most important issue is because you know, like now we have this thing that the psychologists have SIPAC. I just be, I fought legislatively to get SIPAC. I just joined SIPAC. So I can now practice telehealth in, um, I think we're up to almost 30 states. Florida just introduced. So it goes basically the whole entire Eastern seaboard. And now a lot of the Midwest and, and Texas are now in SIPAC. So I can practice, I can talk to your child on the phone when they go to college, if I was seeing them before I could start seeing them there and I can also see them in person. So if I'm on the road and I happen to be in New Haven, Connecticut, then I can see your child 30 times during a year because I can now do in person for an additional amount of time. But that doesn't mean that if I'm a Blue Cross provider that Blue Cross will cover it. So those are two separate issues, but also the insurance often drives it. But um, to the person who asked that question, I want to tell you, if you know mental health providers, reach out to them because we all have these Facebook groups and email chains that we belong on and get someone to see, help you to see any provider that takes Blue Cross and Blue Shield in Southern Indiana, right? So try to reach out to other mental health professionals to see if they can help you identify someone who can see your child on insurance. And again, I don't take insurance, but I will say this. If your child is in crisis, that might be the time to just, you know, take the resources and pay for a couple of sessions and then continue to try to find someone who could take your insurance. I know that that's a huge burden and I know that that's difficult, but if your child is in crisis and you can at all pay and fight with your insurance company for reimbursement, a lot of times the therapist will write, the out of network person will write you notes and help you get reimbursement. Right. There's another person that mentioned that her adult son needed therapy, but for two years fought the idea of getting it and kept saying he would find one himself. When he was in crisis last fall, she asked him once again, if he would like her to help him find a therapist. Shockingly, he said yes. And he was open to starting with any available therapist. That was the biggest red flag for me. Needless to say, I moved every mountain I could to give him what he needed. Mm -hmm. Fast forward, he's doing much better and I remain watchful. I want to just say this, Kelly. I know we have a lot of questions in the chat, but for those of you who are out there who are parents and those of you out there that's the hub in your, your home, listen to your children's friends. I, you know, worked at a local um, private school. I worked in charter schools. I worked in schools with learning disorders. And in the last two years, y'all, I've gotten more emails and texts and private messages where they found me on Facebook asking me about therapists. These are kids that I met in fourth grade. So that relationship that y'all are building with these kids, you might be the one that they come to in a crisis. Someone is asking me why many therapists don't take insurance. The insurance companies are really, really difficult to deal with. 
and the compensation is very, very low. Then they have these things called clawbacks where um, they can decide they no longer cover things. And then they, they try to come and get money back from you from when they were covering a thing and you got reimbursement. Then they say, well, you owe me $4,000 back because now we no longer cover that. It's just really hard. You have to really seek raises. It's, it's difficult, but I, there's many ways that I'm very self-aware about the hypocrisy of that position, that it makes it less likely that people can afford you. But I will say this, a lot, a lot of people, including myself, we do a lot of work for, for free. We do a lot of sliding scale stuff. We do a lot of consultations. Like I talk to people and I don't charge them for an initial talk. Um, a lot of people will not even talk to you. So I kind of listen to what you have to say and help you to triage. So in that way, I try to do my best for people in my community that maybe cannot come to me for therapy. I give social events and I'm on email pages and groups just for the purposes of finding insurance providers that I can refer people to. So that's why people don't take it. Okay, somebody, um, somebody has her hand up as well. I can tell you Black folks don't appreciate mental illness. And when you are sharing with your family, I don't share with my family and I don't share about my children unless I have permission. But my family see what they see and they all have opinions. So one of the things I guess I would ask is how do you overcome the stigma of Black folk don't have mental illnesses? We're fine. You just need to beat your children into submission or throw them out of the house or, you know, take any other measures. But one of the things that you need to lose this conviction about is that your children have issues which are based on their mental health because there is just no such thing because we didn't have that when we were growing up and we were fine. I mean, that's what my siblings say. We didn't mm -hmm. have that when we were growing up and look at us, we're fine. Why are your children so different? So can you speak to that challenge? Well, you know, I can speak to it really well because when I actually left being a banking lawyer to become a therapist, my family was like thinking that I had lost my mind and that, you know, that there was no such thing as mental illness. So I can really, really speak to that. And that I was cutting my earnings potential by, uh, you know, ad infinitum. Uh, but you have to focus on your child. You don't want to have any regrets in this life about the call you didn't make for your child. I'm saying, I'm just going to say that definitively. So if that means that when, when your mother or your aunt Sarah says there's no such thing as mental illness, that you ignore her, then, then by all means, ignore her. Um, I tell people a lot of times, don't tell them, <laughs> right? You, there is no obligation for you to tell Aunt Sarah that you put your child in therapy. There is no obligation for a child when they come in at 21, they say to me, I don't want my buddies to know I'm in therapy. Don't tell them, okay? That's an easy solution. Come to therapy for a year, figure out how to get better, how to understand yourself, and then we'll worry about how you tell people. And, you know, I have boys who, you know, two years later are preaching the gospel of um, therapy. We're changing in our community. It's slow, but the rappers and the public figures and the athletes that are coming out and saying, hey, I have issues. We got to be honest. We got to be authentic. It's not easy out there. We are a strong people, but in order to be the strongest people, we got to admit that we are dealing with a lot and a mood disorder is a disease in a similar way as a heart disease. So emphasize that to your family when you engage them. But if the engagement becomes too much, stop engaging with them around issues of mental illness. Just make sure you get your child or yourself Again, I'm going to emphasize the help that you need. And I think the key there is we can set it up for them. We can get it, you know, put it together for them. But then they have to make the call. And yes. at some point, they have to do it. I, I have something, Linda. I heard everything that you said, and you really helped my kids during the time that we were consulting with you. But I have to say, I think that there's something, I don't know if I missed it, but um, just for the record, I've followed <laughs> Linda's advice and it's been helpful in keeping my kids alive. So I want to give that real shout out. But I also think that what I didn't hear 
which I have to humbly say is the emphasis that the adults or the parents need to get their own therapist. And I think that it's unfair for you not to really emphasize that. Why make everybody go through that journey <laughs> and not really yeah. understand that you can't do it without getting a coach yourself. So I just would like you to make sure you speak to that before you I, I, you know, I probably did that implicitly because to be honest with you, I do a lot of work with families and the, I almost in every session now I'm asking the mom and the dad, what's what, what, how are you getting support? Because right. we're all living in this racialized, traumatized society. We have pressures. We see the statistics for our children. We see the college graduation rates for black boys and, and we see that our girls might get their college degree, but they're anxious as hack. Um, and then they doubt themselves and they don't have the esteem that they should have. But a lot of times it comes from the fact that the parents themselves are feeling pressures. The parents themselves are um, battling mood disorders. And so like when they're saying to me, why should this child get treatment, you know, like one, one dad said to me, like, again, I'm keeping it real. He said to me, what's he have to be depressed about? Is, is, when is it going to be my turn to be depressed? I mean, these, this is the defense that I hear, but I see the pain, right? right. So I don't get mad. I talk about, um, you know, like taking care of yourselves. I'm hearing a lot of pain in your voice. I'm hearing a lot of pressure that you feel that your child does well and doesn't present with a problem. I'm often referring them to therapists. And sometimes I just point blank say, I think that your child's treatment will work best in conjunction with your own. Because, you know, we're right. changing the child, but we're putting them back in the same system, right? Mm -hmm. And so that when you change the child, that sometimes make, agitates the system and makes it even worse. Right. Because you're in a system where your dad or your parent or somebody is saying, what's mental illness? And so that is actually exacerbating the situation. So you couldn't be more correct that a lot of times we have to realize that we need our own support. And, and I have gotten support myself around parenting um, because it's not easy. It's not easy being black. It's not easy when you have a black boy that's a big boy who's been stopped by the police. Um, you know, it's mm -hmm. more times than, you know, the regular, you know, your regular criminal, right? Yeah. You know, a six foot six, six black male. Um, it's not right. easy raising children who are smart because they going out there with a system that doesn't value them. Right. So I, I know and realize and recommend treatment often. And you're absolutely correct to check me on that point. As we get ready to close, first just want to say thank you, Dr. McGee, for being here and for sharing around this really sobering topic um, that has hit many of us close to home. I really appreciate you as always. We have given several potential recommendations, names of therapists that work with us at Sunrise. Their contact information is on our website. Yeah, yeah. can I just say one more thing? For those of you that are active in national groups involving Black people, please bring this topic to your groups because we need to get the word out there. We need to stop ignoring it. So if you're looking for speakers or whatever, I'll work with you. If not myself, then there are many other people out there. But please bring these questions about our children and ourselves and mental health to your groups this year. Absolutely. So we are over time and we like to respect people's time here at Sunrise. So we'll turn it over to Kelly Chapman now to close us out with a prayer. And thank you again for being here. We'll be back next week. Okay. And, and Linda, thank you so much. Your passion and your expertise around this is just amazing. Thank you so much as always. We give thanks to you, Lord. You are the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. We are mindful that we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know what challenges our children may face. We don't know what mental anguish our children may endure. We don't know what they aren't telling us. So Lord, please give us the energy, the strength, and the rigor to step in and do the work with our children and ourselves, to be attentive to the issue at hand. If they live in our homes, give us the courage to remove our children's access to dangerous tools, to drugs and objects, 
Give us the discernment to stop and listen to our children and to notice and hear what is being said. Give us the ability to prioritize the need for them to get help or treatment by a doctor, whether it's inpatient or outpatient. Help us to have a sense of urgency and give us financial tactics and strategies if the need for a treatment arises, so that we can get our children the help that they need. And finally, we ask Lord that our children will come to us and voice their feelings. We ask God that you do whatever work that you need to do in us so that our children will feel safe confessing their feelings to us at any time. In Jesus name we pray, amen. Amen, 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 Kelly. Thank you as always for that. Thank you everybody for being here. Really grateful for this village, for all the experts, for the wisdom, for all the parents that come and share so openly and vulnerably every week. I'm Kelly Richardson Lawson, and you've been listening to the Sunrise Project podcast. You can follow Sunrise wherever you listen to podcasts. If you haven't yet, open your podcast app and follow this show. Join us next week for another gathering of support. Thank you for listening. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental wellness challenges, contact your doctor, NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or both. You can reach NAMI's helpline at 800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, or email at info at NAMI.org. Volunteers are working to answer questions, offer support, and provide practical next steps. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA.